very difficult to be a public figure known for this. Because I think the part people forget is that I'm a survivor too. Welcome to Ladies First with Laura Brown. I'm Laura Brown, Editor-in-Chief of InStyle Magazine, and each week I'm talking to a legendary lady about what she does, how she does it, and what we can learn from her. Through the Me Too movement, founder Tarana Burke has inspired millions to speak out about sexual violence. It's not often you get to meet someone who changed the culture as profoundly as this woman has, let alone sit down for a chat and tell bad jokes. Tarana Burke, welcome to Ladies First, in which I interview and we celebrate women who are first in what they do, and you are one of them. Founder of the Me Too movement, incredibly driven in a brilliant woman who we will speak to about many things in this moment. So thanks for coming, mate. Thank you for having me, mate. I met you almost two and a half years ago. It was a Badass Women's Dinner back again when we would have dinners and women would congregate together. You know, you now see this in in cave paintings, but there was a time. And Tarana, who obviously I, I knew of as a formidable activist and and cultural figure, walked in and it had been about a year or so since Me Too had re-exploded into the consciousness. And I I marched right up to you and I said, nice to meet you. You need a wine. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Immediately. (laughs) And And, I was like, I like her. (laughs) And here we are over two years later, fast friends, but also uh, in style. We've worked with you uh, a number of occasions now. I mean, if, if there's a definition of, of badass woman, it's you. And what I want us to start talking about is power. Because I, th- I think about power when I think of you, but Me Too was founded on the idea of supporting women and others who have lost their power. I think what people don't understand about experiencing sexual violence, and that's the breadth of sexual violence, even if it's no actual physical violence involved, is that for a moment or several, however long, you lose the, the power to make decisions about your body, right? And that's one of the powers that we have innately. I get to decide if I raise my hand or lower it. I get to decide if I walk or don't, right? To stop or start. And mm-hmm. to lose that power, it's scary, it's debilitating. And so the power to make decisions about how we move and how we, you know, show up in the world is extremely important. And so everything we do is about reestablishing that power. You've been an a- activist and organizer, et cetera, for a long, long time. And you started Me Too in 2006 and worked on it consistently until, of course, the hashtag reploded, re-exploded, that's the word, reploded in 2017. Mm-hmm. What did power mean to you when you started it? And just culturally versus versus now? It was very powerful to me before people knew what Me Too was, before it was obviously like this global cultural phenomenon. It was still very powerful to watch people's lives change, right? To watch people realize that this thing doesn't define them, to watch people go through the motions of going from not just like, you know, victim to survivor, but from survivor to empowered person, Right. Like it's it's one thing to realize that you survived the thing. It's the next thing to realize that there's power that you can draw from from this thing that you survived. Right. And so I 
I look at the time before me too, and I think about all of these girls, and I've, I've heard from so many young people and who are now adults or adults that we work with, who said, I remember when I first got that t-shirt from you, or I remember when you came to my school, or I remember when I was in that workshop and I never said this before and I was able to say it. It's like, you know, when you see the light bulb go off on, on like cartoons and stuff, it's like watching somebody realize that they have power. Yeah. Because they've been robbed of something, you know, the actual violence that people experience robs them of power. But it's also a secondary theft, if you will, that goes on because the people who don't believe them, the people who try to silence them, the people who don't give them space to heal, all of that continues to rob you of power. So for me, I would define power by the the people who I watched regain it. And like those women who came forward against Harvey Weinstein in the beginning, when you talk to these individual human beings, they were terrified that this incredibly powerful man would take their power from them, right? He had already done it once, but that they would step out into the world and it wouldn't, they wouldn't be supported. They wouldn't be heard. Yeah. It would be, you know, be alienated. Yeah. They'd be alienated and all of that. And so what the movement did was sweep in and help them regain that power. We had, we had dinner outside responsibly blah, 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 in the summer. <laughs> Disclaimer. And there were two girls, one white, one white, one black, I remember. And, um, and they were sitting across and I could see them staring over uh, at you and, and sort of getting all like warm in the eyes. It was really cute. And then they sent us dessert, right? It was a dessert. And, and yeah, when we left, they both just went, thank you, uh, to you. So, For you, I know this isn't about your ego. This is the last thing in the world you would go into for your ego. But you have become a a cultural figure of great note in the last three years, Uh, three something years. So how do you reconcile that visibility that you have now? I'm much better now than I was a few years ago. I'm not a person who ever, you know, sought public eye in any kind. I mean, you don't really do this work thinking that. It's not like you're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to organize survivors because I'm going to be famous one day. (laughs) That's just, those two things don't go together. So I'm going to tell you the thing, this story I tell sometime, and it's about this 80-something-year-old white woman I met in Pittsburgh. I was in an airport in Pittsburgh. And it was at the height of being visible, right? Like height of people recognizing me and say, oh, the Me Too lady or the woman, you know, that kind of thing, right? But I met this this family. It was a husband and his wife and her mother. And the wife recognized me. We took a picture. It was fine. You know, it was great. And then we went on about our way into, into the airport and we got on a little train that takes you from one section to another. And the the mother, who's 83, came over to me and I don't have a lot of experience with elderly white women. (laughs) And so she came up to me and she said, can I give you a hug? And so when I gave her a hug, she whispered in my ear, me too. I was four. (gasps) This woman was 83 years old. And then she, you know, when she let me go. So of course I'm immediately like (laughs) trying to hold in the waterworks. And when she let me go and she said, I never told anybody. They don't even know. And she, she pointed to her, her family and she said, but I saw, I saw you. I saw you on the television. And she says, no one's ever talked about that on the television. And I can say it to you. And I know I can say it to you. 
she's who I think of often because, and I've had tons of other women and men, you know, all, all the whole gender spectrum of folks who said to me, it's just seeing somebody who I know for sure understands what I've been through. Th- that helps me to not shrink from the public yeah. to some degree because it is very difficult <laughs> to be a public figure known for this. Because I think the part people forget is that mm-hmm. I'm a survivor too. If people talk about my life and speculate about things that happened to me and it's, it's really it can be really painful sometimes. That's a heavy weight to carry. And when that heaviness becomes a bit much, what do you do? You know, I am, I, I'm still kind of figuring that out, but I've gotten, so here's the thing. I'm 47. And so around the time when I turned 40, I just, I, I got really serious about boundaries in my life. Right. <laughs> it's like I'm 40 years old. I get to say no, blah, blah, blah. Right. And then Me Too goes viral and that kind of gets blown to hell because I can't be closed off to people and how do I protect myself? But but I'm going to tell you, the p- survivors are not the issue. It's the trolls. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. I, I have a much harder time dealing with the, the people who are vicious and mean and also the people who are cowards who would never say the shit they say on social media to my face. I'm a survivor. I'm a public figure, blah, blah, blah. I'm also a black girl from the Bronx who will really, really bring it to you if I have to. And people forget that too. <laughs> I look at these comments sometimes and I'm thinking, if we was riding a train to work and you were sitting next to me, you would never say no bullshit like this to me, ever. You wouldn't say it yeah. to my face. This is two days after um, the mob, uh, the insurrectionist mob took over the Capitol and I've been looking at your posts. And of course, I think the first thing anybody with a, with a soul thought and realized was how, how did these white people, why were people letting these white people through the door when black people in the summer were tased and tear gassed and shot? But tell me what you thought when you saw that. The thing I wrote on social media was about the Confederate flag being walked through the halls of Congress that just blew my mind. Like the Malcolm X says, chicken, chickens coming home to roost. Hours before that, there were groups of politicians who were elected, American politicians elected to represent American people who were standing against a fairly elected incoming president who were denouncing his election in favor yeah. of this treasonous list of long things that I could say about the, the, the sitting president. And I'm like, of course, the Confederate flag is coming through the halls of Congress. You all created a path for it. Yeah. You know, so I was in New York with my partner. And because we live in a place where you can make right on red, he turned and blew the light at the stoplight. And so we get pulled over by the police. And the police officer that comes to the car is so aggressive. And I mean, uh, he's yelling, you blew that light back there. That, I mean, yelling, right? So he opened the door, right, to the car. And when my partner went to pull the door back closed and said, I'd rather just have the window down, he went, he exploded because he, he claimed that, my, that he had closed the door on him. And so oh. thankfully, there were three police officers there. The third guy was very calm. He calmed that officer down. 
And then he was saying to me, like, you know, he can't make any sudden moves and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I get that you, you all have to move in a particular way for your own safety, but this is unnecessary, right? Moving the door an inch is now all of a sudden an act of aggression and you hit you, you assaulted a police officer, like going on like that. And I thought about that when I was watching these, these, these men and women and all kinds of folks um, breaking into the Capitol, busting out the windows, using police shields to bust out the windows of the Capitol of the United States. The, the hypocrisy is so deep. It runs so, so deep. The difference is so vast. So yeah. to watch that was just, it's America. It's the yeah, America I, I know. Exactly it is. And, it, and it's what your partner knows and it's what black folks all over this country know. And that's why I think that anybody, again, with a brain or soul, does chafe at the term being loosely thrown around, this isn't the America. And it's like, well, actually it is. It's very much America. It's not the America you, you know, want. <laughs> it's not the America you want to believe yeah. exists, but it is the actual America that exists. How do you keep yourself calm when things like that happen? And also, number one, and two, what advice would you share to young young people in these sort of situations? First of all, I was definitely not always calm. I think there are some people who would hear that yeah. and probably have belly laughter at the idea. <laughs> <laughs> Age and maturity is a part of it, but and but also the wisdom that I, in a lot of these situations, I'm like, I'm smarter than you. Jay-Z has that line where he talks about don't argue with fools because from a distance you can't tell who is who. That's a part of my sense of control. I want to be able to get in and out of situations safely, but also Mm -hmm. I can think on my feet. And if I let myself go to a certain place and I'm not able to think on my feet and then the whole thing goes out of the window. You know, I remember during, um, after Mike Brown was, was murdered and all of the wave of murders that happened after that. And my daughter was in the street with friends protesting. And I took those those kids to the side and I'm t- trying to tell them how to avoid clashes with law enforcement at all costs, how to avoid danger, how to see if you see things escalating that you can, can that you can't control, how to remove yourself. Like part of what scares me about and when I see some of the protests and things happening is that there's some who are just running and joining the crowd and you know we can run into trouble that way and when you were starting out as an organized and activist you didn't have you know emotions you could just fling onto social media and listen um, i'm so glad we didn't have social media growing up i just oh. they didn't like was that the me too lady we just found footage of her twerking on the table in 96 <laughs> this doesn't look very becoming of a leader <laughs> Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam.
Welcome back to Ladies First with me, Laura Brown. Tarana Burke, she's changed the culture in the last few years more than we'll ever know. Yeah, I want to um, talk about Act Two because um, what you've addressed obviously is somebody's personal experience, how to help them through that, obviously, with the resources you, you all have. Act Two takes it more broadly into the community. Yeah, Act Two is we rolled it out on the anniversary in October, uh, the anniversary of the Me Too hashtag in, in October. And essentially, it's the world's first activism search engine. And, and it came about because the questions that came up all the time were, what's next? And how do I get involved? And I would, you know, I would have this really lofty speech about going and back into their communities and looking for the gaps and da 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 and all these things. And, and I had a woman say to me one day after after a talk, I really loved what you said, but I've never done anything in my life remotely close to activism. And yeah. I don't know how to look for gaps. How to do it. Right. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. And it's I It's overwhelming. Of it course. Is. It is. And yeah. I'm I'm yeah. speaking from a place of the privilege of having been this life for a long time and yeah. being oriented to these things and not thinking about folks who are just like, I'm moved in this moment and I want to do something with this feeling. And so Act Two allows you to say, I just watched this terrible, you know, documentary on television, or I just saw this news item on the in the evening news, or I just read this article and I'm I'm enraged or I'm, I feel emboldened and what can I do with that energy? You can go to the computer to act2.metoomovement.org and search for how you can do more with that energy. You can volunteer, donate, you know, sign up for a campaign. You can find stuff locally that's happening t- towards the work to end sexual violence. But the other piece is, because it's, it's not stuff happening locally everywhere, right? They're not every community across the country doesn't have something that you can do. There's also what we call micro actions. You can take these big actions and go join a march or donate or blah, blah, blah. But you can also read a book, listen to a podcast, you know, go through an article, become informed. Because it's just as important to me to have citizens of this world be informed about the breadth of sexual violence and the and the, the the depth of sexual violence and what it does in our lives and how it affects us as a community. Because one day you're going to be called to jury duty. One day right. you're going to be called to, to give an opinion, right? When you have influence over a group of people. And one day you you may be at Thanksgiving and you know Uncle Roger, who always has something smart to say, says something and you will be armed with information to be like, you know what, Uncle Raj, you're wrong. And then influence everybody in your family. So if we're going to end sexual violence or even get close to interrupting it, there has to be a monumental culture shift. And that can't happen unless people have really good information. And I think that's so important to to remind people of. Just, you know, furnishing your brain with greater understanding of this can often be enough because there's going to be all different types of people who are capable. I love to talk about ambition, you know, this. Women, for some reason... Some still shy away from it, and I hate that. But tell me um, what you're ambitious for, for Me Too, Act Two, et cetera, for 2021 and, and beyond. And, and then for yourself, milady. We did a lot of work in 2020. And, uh, mm-hmm. and one of the big things we did was our Survivor Summit and, and came out with a Survivor's Agenda. And it was the first time in the history of this country that we had a crowdsourced document that came from survivors that said, this is what we want. 
This right. is what we want in government and politics. This is how we want you to govern us. This is what we need in our communities. So our focus moving into 2021 and really beyond is to how do we actionize that document? Right. So we'll be amplifying that, the survivor's agenda, certainly. But for the last two years, we've been getting ready to move into the next administration, right? But, you know, we had this election cycle happen and it became really clear that people deal with survivors of sexual violence in particular from a place of pity. You know, a lot of the work that's done is from like a a service based model. Like, what do you need as opposed to helping people tap into their own power so they can so they can get what they need? We we believe in survivor leadership. And so definitely our, the, the, my ambition, which is a lofty goal and big, big, ambitious, juicy thing is we want to make sure people understand survivors as a power base. We are a constituency. We get we can right. move policy. We can make people pay attention to, you know, people who we hire to represent us, pay attention to who we are. Our goal right. is to make sure that everybody from the president down understands sexual violence as a public health crisis, right? You got millions of people affected by this singular thing. We have to be more serious about how we approach dealing with it. But I, one thing I've always really appreciated uh, about the, your way of coming at this is is not a poor you. It's not a... It's not a, yes, of course. There's empathy and sympathy for a survivor. That's that, that's in, that's in, that's implicit. Um, but it is not. This happened to you, and now you're defined by this. Absolutely not. That's right. Absolutely not. When I used to do trainings with folks, I would say, you know, ask them questions like, "Who were you before the trauma?" You know, yeah. and really, what of that is is still here? Because it doesn't go anywhere. If you were smart, ambitious, joyful, funny, all of those things, they may have been squashed, but they don't disappear, right? And so what we've gone through in the last four years is a collective trauma. One One of the things that I really want to impress upon people in the world is that healing is possible. This is a moment we define what resilience looks like. We, meaning the survivors of sexual violence, domestic violence, you know, survivors of cancer, survivors, people who have survived traumatic experiences exemplify what resilience looks like. And this is a time when we can use the lessons we learned in our survival to really help people heal in the yeah. world because we really need to, we don't need to, as Seinfeld says, we don't need to yada yada this moment. Right? No, we, no. we need to pay attention to how people are feeling, what they're thinking, how they're moving and really, yeah. and really do work to, to make sure we move into the next moment feeling good about ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And whatever your race, economic situation, da, 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 what, there, there is uh, some insinuation of trauma in your brain from the last four years. If you're, if you're not the folks who, trash the place it is it's lurking in there i am uh, such an admirer of what you've done and i was so privileged that you asked me to join uh the b2 board and to be able to work on on so much of this with you guys and beyond in and any help or use that can be media or just a regular regular gal so thank thank you tell me about the book with Brene brown yes we have an edited collection of essays coming out called you are your best thing and it is, I'm so excited about it. I, I love Renee. I admired and adored her before I met her. And then we became fast friends when I did. And one of the things we talked a lot about is about how her work was so powerful 
and meaningful for me, but like I felt like I had to contort myself to fit into it as a Black woman. And how I thought the tools that she laid out around empathy and shame resilience are so needed in the Black community, but also done in the Black community. It became this ongoing conversation that eventually became after the summer and, you know, what happened with George Floyd and the uprisings, I thought I really wanted to create a space for Black people to talk about what they're dealing with, not just in relation to that, but but all the books that have come out, we're all talking to white people, right? How to be better white people, how to be (laughs) anti-racist. How to be, you know, literally. And I think I think those are necessary. I'm not. I'm not don't laugh, Laura. <laughs> no, I'm not. Their audience is yeah. to white people. And I'm thinking about I'm watching that and I'm saying, but it's black people who are actually being traumatized. Right. Where we have to watch this happen. The people be murdered that look like us right in front of our face and all. And where do we get to, like, talk about what that does to us? Talk about. Yeah. The you know the how white privilege um, weaponizes shame against us white supremacy rather anyway so this book has this amazing set of essays from some of the most brilliant minds known and unknown and Brene is just you know she's just a great person now we like to end this with something called ten firsts and it's just like a ten questions about cheeky matters. Okay, what is the first drink you order? Oh, whiskey sour. Mm, when was the last time you ordered a whiskey sour at a place? Shit. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. I don't because I very rarely drink. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's very, it's very mature. Okay, first thing you look at on your phone in the morning? Text messages. Yeah, that's pretty hot. Second thing. Second so email. Thing. Yeah. And social media is after those things. Oh, well done. I made a whole scroll that's just social media. So I don't, so it's not even on the first page of my iPhone because I'm over it. That is smart. You went viral with a hashtag and you're a bit over social media. I can't imagine why. Okay. First, first person you call. I don't call people. It's true. <laughs> it's, it's, if I was, it would be my daughter. It's so funny because you think because we're all so isolated from each other that you'd be yakking it up, calling people all day. <laughs> we text. I text a lot, but we don't. I don't really make a lot because I have to do this all day. I'm on Zoom yeah. and conference calls and whatever. So I'm like every day. Yeah. I have to. I have to like power. To, I'm trying to do this whole schedule thing in a new year. So this stuff because I'm still finishing the book, the yeah. my book, my memoir, and so I'm like this many hours for this this many hours to work and then power down. It's not working yet, but we'll see. <laughs> Let me know how that goes. <laughs> All right. First, first joke you remember. First joke. <laughs> oh, I always tell the, what did the, <laughs> this is so, this is the corniest joke in the world. It's from, it's from Pulp Fiction. Three tomatoes are walking down the street, a papa tomato, a mama tomato, and a little baby tomato. <laughs> Baby tomato starts lagging behind. Papa tomato gets angry and goes over to baby tomato and squishes him and says, catch up. <laughs> it's it's actually pretty violent when you when you <laughs> It's it's hilarious. 
What was your first and uh, your first fashion splurge, and, and also the most recent thing that you loved or liked? Gosh, I'm almost embarrassed to tell you, but I will. I don't even remember the name because I don't think it was like a big designer, but there was a a little boutique in Soho, and they had a pair. I was early twenties. They had a pair of boots. They were five hundred dollars at the time. My rent was five hundred and forty five dollars. <laughs> I fell I in love with it. those boots. So I just, and then I went, and then I had to tell my mother who was so disappointed in me. So she's like, how much are these boots? And I tried to lie. And I said, they were like a hundred dollars. My mother knows quality, right? So she takes them on and she's looking, she's like, these were not $100 boots. <laughs> and all she said was, don't call me when your rent is due. <laughs> it's like, Okay. The first time you owned your shit. I, I come from a long line of women who own their shit. So I, I'm sure this was really early on. Like in school one time, they, my teacher was talking about Lincoln freeing the slaves. I think it was uh-huh. in the sixth grade. And my teacher, Miss McCarry, I'll never forget. She was very dismissive saying, um, I just, I, I said, you know, my grandfather said that the Lincoln didn't free the slaves. Abraham Lincoln didn't free the slaves. And she was like, oh. well, I'm sure your grandfather's a scholar, but that's not exactly what the, what your textbook says. Ooh, and I got so upset. And I went home and I told my granddaddy and my mom. And my granddaddy gave me a book. I forgot which book it was, but my grandfather gave me a book to come back. And it was some really heady book to outline. And I came back and raised my hand. And I was like, <clears throat> my grandfather, the scholar told me to tell you and I read the passage from the book (laughs) and she's and she tried to be all like oh I'm so glad and you know I'll give you extra credit and blah blah blah. I was like nah what you're gonna do is apologize for trying to play my granddaddy in this class I know what I I I said what I said and so I was like I don't need extra credit I just need an apology first date I dated my daughter's father in high school I met him in high school he took me down to 42nd Street and I used to have this big arcade down there, but uh-huh. I didn't like video games. And so essentially I just watched him and his friends play video games for two hours. And then we walked around Times Square. We got some like food off the street and then we went home and I was like, oh, this is dating. Thanks. Coincidentally, <laughs> though, I actually met my partner now around the same time. Our first date was to go see Spike Lee's Jungle Fever. <laughs> and it was very nice. That's a, a, a distinct improvement on the arcade and street food in Times Square. Okay. First thing you do or eat if you're stressed out? Twizzlers. I, can you do it like Homer Simpson? Just keep putting them in? I can just sit. I get the jumbo bag. I have some downstairs now. And if it's a really stressful situation, I can certainly sit and eat a half a bag of Twizzlers in a sitting. I'm pretty terrible. Then do you start bouncing off the wall like a pinball or do you just pass out? No, I just pass out. (laughs) (laughs) It's better this way. Okay. First car you bought? Oh, my gosh. It was a Ford. I don't even know what year it was, but it was a Ford Bronco 2. I paid $1,500 for it. That's three pairs of boots. Yeah, exactly. I paid $1,500 for it and it died uh, maybe six months after I got it because I didn't realize it had two 
something, two gas tanks or something, something I wasn't doing. I wasn't putting oil in the right thing and my engine locked up and it was gone. Okay. Last one. First thing you'll do when this goddamn pandemic is over. Oh, I'm hopping on a plane to, I want to go to Italy. I'm Italy's one of my favorite countries. And I just, it, it, I think I've created an obsession in my mind. Like I haven't been in three years. Like you have to go every year, you know, just like, I, I just want to spend the summer in like Tuscany. I just, I know that's not possible, but I'm, I'm plotting right now. I know. I think that's what everybody yearns for. Well, that's it. Tarana Bloody Burke, TB. I'm so glad you walked into that dinner. On behalf of me and, and women everywhere, we're so grateful that you exist. We're so grateful that Me Too exists. We're so grateful that Act Two exists and will continue to grow because of you. Thank you. This has been Ladies First with Laura Brown. We can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our production team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Savarese, Danielle Roth, Anne Ford, Anne Kane, and Erica Wong. And thanks to Brian Anstey, Molly Stout, and Haley Mason at InStyle. You can find out more at InStyle.com. Find us on Instagram at InStyle Magazine, on Twitter at InStyle, and you can find me on Insta and Twitter at LauraBrown99.